When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just like the director is directing the human actors, we are directing the dogs every moment to evoke the performance out of them. Every single thing you see is a trained behavior. You know, everything from when they let, you know, lower their heads, the way they move their eyes. It's all because we've trained them to do that. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hi, June. We're back again. How are you? I am well. Always very happy to see you and talk with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great because I'm so excited for our conversation this week, which leads me to ask, whose voice did we just hear? So the voice that we heard at the top of the show belongs to Sarah Clifford. Sarah is a very experienced animal trainer who has facilitated animal performances in all kinds of movies and TV shows. And I wanted to speak with her now because she worked with the two Rottweilers who are stealing the show in FX's great series, The Old Man. I'm so excited to listen to this interview because the topic of animal training for performance is so fascinating to me. And also, knowing that we had to do this episode, I looked up pictures of these dogs and they're so cute. Um, (laughs) But before we dive into all that, what can we look forward to in the Slate Plus segment this week? So Sarah has trained all kinds of creatures over the years, from goats to butterflies. Wow. (laughs) I wondered if there are any animals that are totally unbiddable Mm-hmm. or if all animals can be trained to perform. So I asked her about that. Well, there's no way that I'm going to miss a segment like that. I'm so excited to hear it. And if you are not a Slate Plus member already, but want to get in on this action and find out what animals you just can't have around, why not join Slate Plus? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like the Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear June's conversation with Sarah Clifford. Sarah Clifford, thank you for joining us today on Working. Thank you for having me, guys. So you trained the dogs that appear in the FX series, The Old Man, They are the constant companions of Dan Chase, played by Jeff Bridges. They are two Rottweilers, and they are amazing. And first, I'm curious, are they your dogs? Like, when a new show is announced with animals central to the story, does a casting call go out and all the animal trainers show up in a trailer with their Rottweilers that they're sure are right for the parts? How does that work? To answer your question, yes, they are my personal dogs. Um, one of the producers knew me for 15 years. And so she called me up and said, hey, um, I've got this show. 
We need two dogs for the series that will be Jeff Bridges' dogs. And I'd like to bring you in for an interview to meet with the producers. Um, There was no set breed at that time when I first got the phone call in uh, July of 2019. So it wasn't specifically Rottweilers. Uh, It was just two large dogs. Um, Basically what the book actually, the old man book, actually says, um, you know, two large mutts. So um, I went in for a meeting. I met with Dan Schatz and Warren Littlefield, and we discussed, you know, my ability as a trainer and my experience, and it was kind of an interview process. And then once um, we had the interview, uh, they decided to hire me, and that's when the casting process basically got rolling really quickly. And we all together creatively decided what would be best for the show, what dogs would be you know, uh, sweet and adorable one minute and terrifying the next minute. And um, we collectively agreed that Rottweilers would fit the bill. It took us about two weeks to kind of go back and forth. You know, we discussed different breeds like Malinois and Pitbulls and other breeds. And we, we all collectively decided that Rottweilers would be a great choice for the show. Can you say why? What was it about Rottweilers that felt right rather than, say, Pitbulls? You know, they really wanted my input on what I thought would be, you know, a really great companion dog, um, you know, something that would believably be able to protect Dan Chase, but also be able to be really cuddly and sweet. And, you know, we yeah. kind of narrowed it down to three breeds. Um, John Wick, um, one of the John Wicks had just come out. And so Malinois were really, really popular at the time. And we were kind of leaning toward Malinois. But then, um, you know, because Malinois were were being used so much at that time, I personally kind of was leaning toward Rottweilers. I'd always just had a fondness of Rottweilers. I love their faces. I think they're just the cutest dogs. And, you know, they're just so full of expression. So I kind of was pushing for Rottweilers. And then um, one of the producers also was really into Rottweilers. And so we kind of just, you know, narrowed it down to that breed and just decided that because they're so loyal and they're such strong, you know, um, beautiful dogs that they would be just a good fit for the show and easy to double, you know, things like that because I had to actually get the Rottweilers for the show. I didn't have them yet. So, um, you know, because of their markings, they're easy to switch in and out for each other. You've got ahead of me a little bit because a little bird told me that although there are two dogs in the show, Dave and Carol, that actually there were five dogs kind of playing those two parts. So how did that work? Yeah, there were technically five dogs that we used for the show. Um, One of the five dogs was just brought in for one episode. She was specifically a stunt dog for a very intense scene, an attack scene, essentially. Um, She was uh, safe, you know, not actually really aggressive, but just looked aggressive on film and was trained to to look like she was a, a very intense aggressive dog, but really a sweetheart in person. So she technically wasn't like part of the main team. Her name was Daisy. And there were four primary hero dogs that we used for the show. And there wasn't a lot of makeup that we did on them. Um, There was one of our hero dogs, name is Freya. And uh, Jeff Bridges happens to be very fond of Freya. And that's his favorite dog personally. 
And she um, is a little lighter in her tan markings. They're a little more orangey. Um, so they're every morning when I'd get to set, we would actually do a little bit of like, it's basically grooming chalk. It's nothing toxic or anything. It's what dog show people use to, you know, touch up their dogs. So I'd just use a little bit of um, reddish brown grooming chalk on those tan points um, so that uh, she would match the others because they were like a darker mahogany color. So it was very limited makeup, but yes, there was one dog out of the, the four Um, that we would do a little makeup on. So I was very conscious that even though, you know, these are professional dogs, and I'm sure you're an amazing trainer, still they're animals, as are we, but anyway. And so I wasn't sure when there is an attack scene or a a sort of a scene where the, the dogs are defending their human, if that was actually a real dog doing that, or if that was CGI, or perhaps a combination of both. So how does that work? When we do scenes that like that, like attack scenes, um, anything that is perceived aggression, um, it is mm-hmm. very, very carefully done. It is choreographed like a like a dance. You know, every little movement that's made is trained with human stunt professionals. So we train the dogs to do... Um, the episodes that you've probably seen are episodes one and two, um, where there were, you know, where the dogs did attack an intruder. Um, and that was almost all real dogs. I was actually given a lot of credit for being able to train the dogs safely to do that without, of course, ever having any harm come to our stuntmen that were getting actually, you know, jumped on by these dogs. And I trained um, one of the dogs to actually hold the stuntman down by his neck without using any kind of protection layer between. Um, it was a very, very, you know, slow process. I first trained him to hold a toy. First, then I trained him to hold my arm in his mouth. Then I trained him to hold a dummy in his mouth. Um, and then I trained him, you know, to put his mouth around one of my trainers. And then I it finally transferred it onto a stuntman. So it was completely safe. Um, the only CGI that was used was just a little tiny bit when they're growling. So they didn't actually growl and, you know, snarl and show their teeth um, in real life. Um, they did do everything else, though. They, you know, ran and jumped and knocked over a stuntman. Um, you know, they... Uh, do arm hold, they they do the fake biting, but really all of it's just for toys. It's all pure play, pure fun. There's no aggression involved. But again, it's very carefully choreographed by the trainers. Wow. So I have to say that when I think of dogs on television, I think of like Eddie on Frasier, Sykes on Midsummer Murders. That's a British show, so I'm not sure if you've seen that. But they're Jack Russell Terriers. And I'm guessing that Jack Russells are particularly responsive to training. Also, they're nice and small, which I'm sure is a help in a crowded TV set. Dave and Carol are, as we've said, Rottweilers. They're big, they're beefy. Are some dogs or some breeds harder to train than others? And, and where do Rottweilers fall on that scale? Every dog has a different personality. You know, uh, some breeds are more um, adapt to learning behaviors more quickly, such as the Jack Russell Terrier. I actually trained um, and worked on the artist, which had a feature, Jack Russell Terrier. That was my company that provided, and I was the head trainer um, with the dog, Uggie, and I had three backup dogs as well. 
Um, and those dogs were incredible. I mean, my gosh, they're just made to be actors. They're wonderful and they can, they're just so smart and their tenacity to work very long hours. They just, they're, they're amazing dogs. Um, and yeah, Rottweilers are a little different. Um, they don't quite have the same, I wouldn't say mindset. They're just, um, every dog's bred for a different purpose. So Rottweilers are very trainable, very smart, very loyal. But yeah, you're dealing um, with a lot of dog and a lot of personality and a lot of drive. So they're definitely a harder dog to train than maybe a Jack Russell or say like a Lab or a Golden Retriever because you're dealing with so much strength in a dog. Um, you know, their bite power is very, very strong. They, you know, get easily aroused, meaning like if you pull out a ball or a toy, they're like, woo, you know, it's like they go from zero to a hundred percent really quickly. So I think that Again, every breed, there aren't like, you know, I've trained some chihuahuas are absolutely amazing. You know, it just depends on the dog and their personality, um, you know, and, and if they're, um, you know, into food, if they're into toys, if they're just naturally um, outgoing, that those are traits that we look for when we train movie dogs. So obviously you are an animal lover of, you know, the highest power I know that you are aware that certain breeds of dogs have a kind of a reputation for being dangerous and every person who has any contact with a dog like that will say, it's not the dog. But given that at certain points, Dave and Carol, who are Dan's you know, best friends, they will come to his aid. Uh, and sometimes that defense means that they have to be aggressive. And I wonder if you kind of ever have thoughts when you're dealing with a scene like that of like, are you contributing to the bad rap that certain breeds, especially of dogs have? How do you kind of work through that as you're working as a professional animal trainer? Yeah, I'm very aware of, you know, breed biases and um, the stigma about Rottweilers and pit bulls. And a lot of the time, you know, when I get phone calls for the Rottweilers or for, you know, say my German Shepherd, um, it's going to be aggressive dog scenes. And that happens a lot. But I think the amazing thing about the old man and what I like is the way it's written for Dave and Carol is it also shows how amazing like they are as companions, how loyal they are. You know, Rottweilers are really like that. They are protective. You know, I'm, all my dogs are highly, highly socialized. And, um, you know, I, I really go out of the way to make sure they're comfortable strangers. But let me tell you, they are very protective of my property. And Freya, for example, who's one of my sweetest dogs, if some stranger comes outside my gate, she looks like she's going to eat them, you know, <laughs> and that is just her, the, her breed. Um, so I think that I respect that you know, these dogs are powerful. And I think that the stigma comes from people get these dogs for the wrong reasons. You know, um, Rottweilers and Pitbulls are wonderful dogs and they could be wonderful companions, but they're a lot of dog and they're strong and they have high drives. So if they're sitting in someone's backyard and they're bored, they're going to be destructive. If they're not trained and socialized, they could potentially be aggressive. So I think that 
you know, you have to understand the, the breed it has been bred for a specific purpose and people really, really should never get a, a dog when they see them on TV because they're cute, you know, like 101 Dalmatians. That obviously didn't go well because um, Dalmatians are an incredibly difficult dog to own. Um, and I think Rottweilers are the same. Rottweilers are a lot of dog. I mean, I've had my Rottweilers, when they're not working and they just have downtime, if they're not exercised properly and trained properly and giving enough stimulation and attention, they chew everything. They destroy everything. <laughs> like they've chewed my gate wires. They've chewed my mud flaps on my car. They've chewed crates and beds and everything, you know, and that's just my fault as an owner that I wasn't properly attending to their needs. So I just hope people do their research before they go out and get a breed like this. When we've been talking about training, you know, you've been talking about effectively choreography, but there are also times, you know, especially in the old man with Dave and Carol, when they are just being so cute. And so what are some of the tricks of the animal training world like how do you get a dog to you know look extra cute and then maybe at the next minute you know look scary because they're not actors so how do you do that so when we're training dogs for a role on film I have to give you know the animal trainers a lot of credit I had it just wasn't me I had a whole team of brilliant animal trainers on you know, on the show. Um, so what we do is we, not only we train them basic obedience and sit and stay and down and all that, but we also train them to be characters. You know, we really, really train them to emote. And that's just basically because of us that we're evoking that performance from them, whether it be from a toy that's their favorite toy so we can get them to look aroused and excited in one scene you know because obviously we're directing the dogs just like the director is directing the human actors we are directing the dogs every moment to evoke the performance out of them um so um sometimes we use food sometimes we use sounds sometimes we use like a ball sometimes we you know use our voice a little stern if we want them to look sad um but it, every single thing you see is a train behavior you know everything from when they let you know lower their heads the way they move their eyes it's all because we've trained them to do that so you know i have to just give it up for you know i'm not patting myself on the back, but I'm just saying for my trainers, we all worked incredibly hard. Um, you know, we trained the dogs um, six hours a day and we only had three months, not even three months to train them from scratch, from nothing. And, you know, we just took them everywhere. We, we trained them in Home Depot. We took them to bookstores. We took them to Halloween stores, um, you know, to get them desensitized to things. And then, you know, of course, we trained them to hit their marks. We trained them to stay. We trained them to, you know, just really getting to know the dogs and having a very, very personal relationship to know, like, what, what gets them to tick? What makes the dog, you know, look extra cute in one scene and extra, you know, scary in another, you know? And those are all things we, we learn about the dogs and figure out how to um, get that performance from them. We'll be right back with more of June's conversation with Sarah Clifford. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. 
I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi, listeners. We want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Sarah Clifford. You mentioned that you are kind of directing the dogs just as, you know, the director is, is directing the humans. And I wonder if there are ever times when you have to say to a director or to anybody, you know, who is used to working with humans, I'm sorry, you can't make a dog do that. At least not, you know, if, unless we have like 10 years to make this happen. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, the job of an animal trainer not only is to direct the dogs, to get them to perform, to create the character that they're playing, 
but it is to protect the dog on set. So yeah, we'll definitely say no if we think it's something the dog can't do, um, if we think it's something that might psychologically harm the dog. Um, But in the case of this show, I never had to do that because the producers and the cast and everybody were so amazing and they love these dogs. So they never ever asked the dogs to do anything that would have been uncomfortable for them. Um, But I've been in situations like that before where, you know, I would think the the best example I can think of is when they wanted a dog to look scared or frightened, you know. You can't actually scare or frighten an animal. It's just, it's not something I would ever do and it's not fair to them. So, you know, you have to come up with creative ways to make them look that way through training, but they're not actually feeling scared or frightened, you know. And that's just, again, part of the animal trainer knowing how to get that performance from the dog without ever, you know, psychologically harming them in any way. And again, it is the job of the the animal coordinator, which is my job, you know, um, or the head animal trainer, um, is to say no if you think it's it's not something the dog's capable of doing. But it rarely happens because there's so much um, preparation before you ever go to set. So we know exactly mm-hmm. what we're expecting when we get to set and we prep them and rehearse them beforehand. So, So you said you can't make an animal scared or you will not make a dog scared because you don't want to harm them. And I think that's wonderful. But sometimes they do look scared. So what do you what are your tricks for kind of faking that or kind of creating that impression without actually scaring the dog or whatever animal you're working with? When the script calls for the dog to look scared or upset in any way, um, frightened, Um, there are a set of different types of behaviors that we train a dog to do. Uh, Some of those behaviors are you know, like, you know, when a dog is panting, you automatically think a dog looks like they're smiling or happy. So of course, one of the things we would do is to try to get the dogs to have their mouths closed. And you could either do that by, you know, showing them something that's enticing to them or training them to close their mouth and hold something in their mouth that's small, that's concealed. Um, Because if they're panting, of course, it's going to be like, oh, that dog looks really sweet and happy. Um, So having the dog close its mouth is one thing we do. Um, Training something called a head down um, so to, and that's just simply whether the dog is standing on all fours, um, we teach the dog to lower its head. So just dropping the head um, kind of down toward the floor is uh, perceived as kind of a sad look for the dogs. Um, the head down can also be used in the, um, the lying down position when the dog lowers its chin to the floor. Um, sometimes we teach the dog an eye cover um, where the dog will actually put the paws and cover them over the eyes. That's more of not so much sad, but like embarrassed, you know, shy But mostly it's head down. Um, We can have the dog walk slowly. Um, I did that in a commercial recently for a dog food commercial where the dog is supposed to be lost on the streets and, you know, its owner has abandoned it. And so um, I trained my dog to walk, you know, um, rather than it just going, come here, you know, and having it come to the mark um, and it's trotting over happily to get its treat, I teach them to walk meticulously slow. And we can do that really at any speed. You can train the dog to like take one step at a time and to lower its head and to walk really slowly. And that really evokes sadness um, to the viewer. Um, And that's something that works really well on camera. Um, So those are all the things we train them to do to kind of evoke that. Sometimes I think we'll hear a kind of a I don't know what you call this, you know, like a, almost like a, right. they make a sound. Uh 
It, yes, whining. Thank you. Is that something that would actually be added as a sound effect or, or is that something that you train your dogs to do? So yes, that is something, if I see that written in a script, I always say, hey, this is something that's really difficult to train. Um, that almost, I would say 95% of the time, that's an actual sound effect that's put in post-production. So uh, of course that goes to show like um, a lot of the sounds could evoke, you know, with the pairing of what we train the animals to do. So if the dog's lowering its head or its chin to the ground and then in post-production they're adding the whining in, it looks, you know, seamless and it looks like the dog's sad, you know, to the viewer. So most of the time those sounds are put in. On occasion, I have been able to train a dog to actually cry, you know, on um, command, my great Dane does it just by um, when I like do a little howling sound, he kind of like whines, you know, and that's how I, I click and I use a clicker to train my dogs to, to get their behavior. So um, he is actually trained to do real whining sounds, uh, which we recently did in a project, but most of the time it's done in post-production. I know that in that sort of famous old theater adage, you know, don't work with children and animals. Children and animals are kind of paired together. Obviously, there are rules about how many hours child actors can be on set. Are there similar rules about how many hours animals can work every day? That's a question people ask me fairly often is if you know, there is a limit to, um, you know, an animal being able to be on set. And unfortunately, there isn't. There never has been an established rule. But again, um, because I, you know, these are my dogs, I own them and I'm the head trainer, I can make that judgment call. And I do often. Um, I definitely, when, you know, um, when I'm talking to producers and when they're, you know, interested in hiring my animals, I encourage them to, um, you know, shoot within an eight hour day. Um, and that includes lots of rest time on set. You know, on this production, they gave us a huge trailer for the dogs. Um, they provided an air conditioned trailer. So whenever the dogs weren't on set working, they were sleeping in their, in their air conditioned trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, unfortunately, no one has ever established an actual rule um, saying like, you know, the dog has to be on set for less than eight hours. The only animal that I know of that there is an actual rule are primates like um, chimpanzees and, and monkeys. They, I believe they can only be on set for eight hours max. And again, to go back to that never work with children or animals. Do actors ever kind of have demands about how much or how little screen time they're willing to do with dogs or any other animals? You know, I've never really personally dealt with that, like to my face, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I've been in the business for 22 years. So I've definitely seen moments where actors know that when an animal is on set with them, you know, the attention tends to go to the animal. And I've seen actors be um, insecure about that, you know, um, just within the 22 years I've been in the business. But as far as, you know, it's most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, um, the actors I work with are are so, they love the animals and they're so into them and, um, you know, they're willing to do whatever needs to be done to help the performance on this show, on the old man, um, Jeff Bridges, like, was so generous with his time. He rehearsed with us for like several weeks ahead of time and and he would call me and be like, hey, do you want to train today? Do you want to get me to get together with the dogs? I mean, 
rarely does that happen um, because especially with an A-list actor like Jeff Bridges, you know, where they offer their time and, and call you out of the blue and say, hey, do you, I'm available today. Do you want to get, you know, want me to get together with, and to rehearse with the dogs, you know? And that was just amazing. Like, because again, it's Jeff and he has a full schedule and he always made time to really create a real bond with the dogs. So what would he do when, when he would make one of those calls and he was going to rehearse with the dogs? What did that look like? What did he and, and whichever dogs he was with that day, what would they do? So basically in the beginning, of course, you know, Rottweilers are a dog that tend to bond with like their immediate family. You know, they want to bond with one or two people. So um, you really have to have, um, you know, familiarization to have them really be comfortable. So had I shown up the first day on set and been like, here's the Rottweilers, these are your dogs, it would not have translated on screen the way that it does, um, that they were comfortable with him and that they really looked like his dogs. So because we did the rehearsals, um, and in the rehearsals, a lot of the time we would have Jeff throw the ball for them in the beginning just so they can hear his voice and get comfortable with them. Um, we would have, um, Jeff actually would wear a fanny pack and he wore treats. Um, I had a special fanny pack designated for Jeff Bridges, which was so fun. And he would give them treats and tell them to sit and stay and down. And that way they would get used to hearing his voice and, and basically teaching Jeff to be a trainer, you know, so that the, he could give them their cues. Um, and then we would um, advance to when we, the more we did rehearsals with Jeff, um, we would actually rehearse scenes. You know, we would rehearse the car scenes. We would rehearse them laying in bed with him so that we would kind of know like what it would look like, you know, when we actually were on set. So rehearsing the actual scenes was always super beneficial because then, you know, Jeff can get a feel for the dogs and they can get a feel for him. So I noticed too, that when he, at least at certain times when he gave commands, they were in German. Is that just something you do with Rottweilers? What was that about? So it's a specific type of training. Um, I believe it's called Schutzen. Hopefully I didn't get that wrong. But um, there's like a specific type of like training that you could train dogs to teach them cues in German. And, um, and that's kind of, you know, used for protection dogs, for dogs that are used to, you know, guard their owners or whatever. Um, yeah, those were the cues in, in German. Um, of course, the dogs didn't actually respond to the actual German words. They're responding to me um, off camera. But yeah, that's where that comes from. Interesting. Well, we've been talking about the old man and, and there are, as we've said, some amazing dogs in there. But you mentioned you've been working for in this business for 22 years. I noticed you have like 161 credits in the IMDb. And as I read through them, you know, some of them are on shows that I watched and liked. I don't remember a goat being on Suburgatory, but I saw that you had been a goat wrangler uh, when we were talking about trying to figure out a time. You mentioned that you had something with a tortoise one week. I mean, do you actually have a farm full of goats and tortoises and dogs? Yes, I have a farm and uh, it's uh, about two acres and that's why I live so far uh, in the middle of nowhere, you know, to have that space for the animals. Um, and it's all set up for the animals to make it as comfortable for them as possible. Um, lots of areas for them to run. And I, um, I do have goats and I have a pig and chickens and 
16 dogs and cats. Um, so I primarily really just focus on domestic animals for the film industry. I don't deal with exotic animals. Um, there are other people that I could call for exotic animals, but I tend to just provide um, domestic animals, farm animals. Um, and that includes, you know, um, insects, um, birds, tortoises, like I mentioned. Um, and yeah, I love working with a variety of animals. It's the most fun thing. I mean, dogs are incredible and my favorite animal, um, but working with, you know, when you get a call to train a mouse to do something to hit its mark or a tortoise to do something, or, you know, I train my goat to actually play dead and lay on the ground still and, you know, do like a fake death scene. I mean, those are really fun jobs to get calls for because they're super challenging and they're different. And I love that, you know, I love the creative challenges that I get in this job, this line of work. Yeah. Sarah Clifford, thank you so much for talking with us today and explaining something about the wild world of animal training. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a fun interview. I appreciate it. June, that was so fascinating to listen to. And I guess to kick us off, I want to know, is there a moment or scene in The Old Man that made you go, oh, wow, these dogs are great at acting? (laughs) It was more that as I was watching, I totally believed that those dogs were Dan Chase's constant companions. Mm. Like Jeff Bridges' character in The Old Man, the title character, if you will, (laughs) is a guy who has essentially been in hiding for several decades. He doesn't exactly live completely off the grid, but he doesn't have much human companionship. So his dogs are his family. And that really comes across in pretty subtle but totally credible way. You know, Dave and Carol, the Rottweilers, are his buddies, his bedmates. You know, they travel with him. And when necessary, they are his strongest weapon. So it's not so much that they, like, did a cute head movement and I thought, (laughs) give that dog an Emmy. It was more that you kind of never question that they've known each other, you know, since puppydom. Yeah, for sure. And I was so pleasantly surprised to hear that Sarah worked on The Artist because Uggy, that dog, was such a hit at the time. And I still think one of the more famous movie dogs. And I also obviously loved your shout out to Eddie on Frasier, (laughs) uh, iconic dog performance. Um, Are you a dog person then? Have you had dogs or any experience in training them? I have never had a dog, although, you know, I like dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, However... I have had cats, including one who lived to be 21 and a half. What? Who was an absolute living terror, possibly <laughs> the worst behaved animal that ever existed, except to me. And Oh, my gosh. Her behavior was so bad, as I said, to everyone but me. She loved me, uh, that I had to seek out several forms of training for her. Oh, my gosh. And we once had this really wacky landlady who forced me to consult a pet psychic about this cat because the cat kept attacking the landlady. Oh, my gosh. And the psychic asked the cat, because they're connected. We were on the phone. Uh, Anyway, uh, and (laughs) she asked the cat if she'd been a guard dog in a recent life and was that why she'd attacked the landlady. And Suki said no. She just didn't like some people, (laughs) including the landlady. And 
I'm really not proud, like, that I wasn't able to get Suki to behave better yeah. over the course of her life, but I did enjoy relaying that conversation pretty much verbatim to the landlady, so, you know. Uh, I mean, I've also heard of people trying to train their cats, sometimes successfully. Did you try anything like that with her, or was that a lost cause? <laughs> <laughs> so we had another uh, person who came to offer advice. We actually changed her name mm-hmm. because her first name was very aggressive. Um, <laughs> what was and her first so, name? Her original name was Spanky. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the people who who came to the house to offer advice (sighs) on improving her behavior said, it's just too aggressive. So we changed her name to Suki. But just kind of, there were some actually actionable advice like, playing with her more and mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. just kind of giving her more attention basically so it's pretty basic <laughs> advice that I feel kind of ashamed <laughs> that I didn't do naturally That's hysterical well yeah. I mean sometimes you just don't realize that they they can't take care of themselves like people do exactly. because they exactly. are sometimes so convincing that they can yes yes especially um, cats yeah uh, but to get back to dogs oh yes do you think that the principles of directing dogs for a performance are things that you can apply to managing people People. Because Sarah talks about using different tools depending on what a dog likes, which sounds to me a lot like how some people have different learning styles. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me when I was talking to Sarah is how much better we treat animal performers than human <laughs> actors in certain ways. Like, of course, it's great that professionals figure out what method of instruction would best suit an animal. But It's kind of striking that we don't always have that much patience or flexibility with humans that we work with. So that just made me feel a bit bad. Not not for the animals. The animals like we're treating the animals right. It just made me think maybe we're not being quite so nice to humans. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, (laughs) But another interesting thing that you guys talked about was saying no to something that the dog might not be able to do or wouldn't want to do, which is also a valuable skill in one's professional life. And I think sort of relates to what you're talking about, how we sometimes treat humans worse, Um, Mm -hmm. whether it's standing up for yourself in that kind of scenario or taking care of the people on your team and making sure they're not put into those kinds of situations. Have you ever been put in that kind of position? Oh, again. Another example of where we create clear and quite rigid rules mm-hmm. for the protection of animals. You know, we are able to say that just wouldn't be good for the dog's psyche. And mm-hmm. I applaud that. And all the time we ask human actors to do things that can't possibly be good for them. Um, during the pandemic, there were occasions, I think, where I said, I just don't think we can ask people to do that right now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've also made some borderline unreasonable requests, I think. So I can't give myself too much praise on that score. I think we could all do better with humans. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also a complicated issue because when you think a situation might be bad for a dog, you can't ask the dog... I think it's tough, but do you still want to do this? Which often happens to people. And when you ask people that, they feel pressure to say yes. Like, it's very hard to say no. You know, I've I've talked with actors and, you know, I was like, doesn't that make you feel? And, and like, I know a whole bunch of them, like, they just kind of roll their eyes and like, you know, we're just like saying someone else's words, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this is just, a, and, you know, I get that maybe they have to have that kind of level of separation to do their job. But I remember there was a storyline, I think it was on a show called The Fosters, where a character lost a baby. Mm-hmm. And I really wondered how the actress who was pregnant in real life at the time could like work through that arc without internalizing it somehow. And 
you know, I think it would be would have been really hard for her to say no to that storyline because not only because she didn't want to like say no, um, because I remember I actually asked the people who made the show about it and they said, no, we know we asked her because, you know, we had that concern. But like it was a really juicy storyline. So, of course, an actress is going to want to do those like, "Mm," you know, but I, I, I sometimes think maybe we we should think more about you know the like what the real humans who were saying this line how they're going to internalize that stuff yeah i i think a lot about like my experience as a journalist as well especially when it comes to my friends who are kind of more involved in politics journalism and not yeah. like entertainment and culture basically <laughs> where like sometimes the stuff that they report on is really really heavy and upsetting and it's even though it's not directly happening to them it's impossible to say that there isn't a psychic toll on yeah. them because Absolutely. of the stuff that they're working on yeah but to get back to animal training, this is also a <laughs> profession that maybe requires more of a buy-in and commitment than others because you need to have the animal in order to be able to provide it for a production. You need to train it and spend time with it. And then you have to take care of it for all the time that it isn't working as well. Obviously, yeah. neither of us are animal trainers, but I'm, cur- <laughs> oh. Oh. but I'm curious if you have any advice for someone who might be considering a career that does require this kind of immediate commitment and no real test period as it were oh so hard I think I would encourage people to set out in as small a way as possible whatever Mm -hmm. it is you know the equivalent of starting as an animal trainer with like two mice and a set of stick insects instead of 10 goats and 15 dogs you know there are certain personality types I may well be that kind of person I really couldn't say who like go in on day one you know you're just like I'm getting everything you know Mm -hmm. if you're going to get into photography you buy the top line camera the various lenses the filters and oh man wouldn't it be amazing to have a dark room (laughs) and all before you've really found out if it really is what you want to do um so just I would like really try and keep a lid on it, you know, look for the most budget-friendly way of getting into something. You know, if you want to be a YouTuber, do it with your phone camera, at least to begin with. Mm -hmm. If you want to start blogging, you know, do it on Medium or some of the no-cost platform and take it from there. If you find that you love it, then sure, you can buy a farm, right? Yeah, I totally agree. (laughs) I also admit that I'm very risk-averse. So So it's it's good advice for me, too. All right. We hope you enjoy the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like the Waves and Culture Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Sarah Clifford and to our absolute animal of a producer, Cameron (laughs) Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac Butler's conversation with artist Nayland Blake. Until then, get back to work. (laughs) 